Welcome to our public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Mark Lindsay talks about the rise and fall of the gene and respiratory diseases. Um, so, thank you all for coming to this lecture. Some of you I know have travelled uh, quite away, um, so thank you very much. Um, so, the title of this presentation is the, uh, the rise and fall of the gene. <clears throat> and my interest really in genes has come from about 17 to 20 years worth of research actually in the area of respiratory diseases. And in particular, there's a lot of people in this room actually I've worked with over that period of time. But an interest in terms of respiratory diseases, we talk about asthma and things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and more recently we've been working on lung cancer. And my particular interest has been actually the role of inflammation in these respiratory diseases. So in the case of asthma, we, uh, continuous infections and, and, and exposure to allergen uh, leads to this airway inflammation and now inflammation is thought to lead to the hyperactivity that's characteristic of asthma. And so that if you get re-exposed to these allergens, actually you get airway contraction. This can lead to the shortness of breath, which is characteristic of an asthmatic attack. The other area of interest has been this thing called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and lung cancer. And both of these diseases are very common. They're caused by years of exposure to smoke, i.e. smoking. And that smoke itself induces this airway and lung inflammation. And in the, in the case of COPD, what you get is destruction of the lung, which is often called emphysema. And also you sometimes get this thing called bronchitis, which is, uh, which is a result of mucus secretion and, and is characterised by a cough. In some individuals, that then turns into, develops into lung tumours or lung cancer. And actually, as we're working with some, uh, Richard's just here on trying to characterise why some individuals with COPD then go on to develop uh, lung cancer. Just to give you a feel for what inflammation actually involves, this is, a, this is an airway of patients, this is a normal airway of the patient, and this is, this is a, an inflamed airway of the patient. What you clearly see is it's very red, very swollen. And you can see that this, the airway itself is almost completely occluded, making it very difficult to breathe. Sorry. So, back to the title of, of this presentation. So, what is a gene? Well, in its most simplest term, what a gene is actually, it's a sequence of DNA that's actually turned into a protein. And the reason why proteins are so important is because the proteins are actually the building block of the human body. It's proteins that do all the work in the body, uh, the various different processes. Also, as a pharmacologist, proteins are very important because actually it's proteins that we tend to target. If you get some sort of disease, it's proteins that we tend to target using drugs, the drugs that we develop. And there's really three types of drugs that, we, that are currently available. Classically, the drugs we make are things called small molecule inhibitors. They're very small chemical compounds that either you can, inter you can either interact with proteins, so either inhibit those proteins or activate those proteins. More recently, there's two new types of drugs that have been coming onto the market. In certain cases, we can actually, if, it, if a protein turns out to be very important, we can actually make that protein and inject it back into the individuals, and these are called recomb recombinant proteins. And more recently, the development of these things called antibodies, antibodies that actually block the activity of a protein. And many of the, I mean, much of the, there's much of, many of these new drugs that come on the market are extremely expensive because they are these recombinant proteins or antibodies which are quite expensive to make and, and develop. So, as I said, as part of this talk, what I want to talk about is the, the rise of the gene and, and as I say, the fall of the gene. In terms of the rise of the gene, I want to talk about two things. First thing, I want to talk about the discovery of DNA, how it occurred, and how we found out how a DNA is turned into a protein. And that was one of the big steps forward in terms of the rise of the gene. The second big step forward in terms of the gene there was the sequence of the human genome, which was completed uh, in, in year 2000. And the second part of this, second part, the first part of the talk, I want to talk about uh, the mechanisms that took part in the sequence of the human genome.
So this whole story starts back in the 1950s. Uh, I just pulled out some pictures of the latest technology in the 1950s just to show how things have changed. This would have been the latest iPad in those days. Quite difficult to carry around. So there's a man chap here saying that's this massive computer. And here we have the latest in, in television, black and white television, um, 12 and a half inch screen, but coming in at a whacking $240, which is a huge amount of money considering it was over 40 years ago. One of the big problems at the same time in the 1950s was we sort of knew that there was, we, the big question in terms of biology was, was how is the information in biology stored in cells and how is it then passed on uh, to the next generation of cells during cell division? And that really wasn't, really, nobody really knew uh, how that was occurring in, 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 the, in the early 1950s. There was a bit of suspicion that it might be mediated by these things called nucleotides. And the reason for this is actually, if you looked in things like sperm, these are actually full of these nucleotides, and we know that sperm is very important in passing on information from one uh, generation to another. If you look at the structure of nucleotides, it has three components, and this is quite important. You have this phosphate group just here. These nucleotides also have this pentose uh, sugar group, and actually there's two types of sugars that you can have. You can either have this deoxyribose type sugar, which means you get deoxy DNA, or you can have a ribose type sugar, which leads to a thing called RNA. And the third component of this nucleotide was this nitrogenous base. And there was three of these bases were shared between DNA and RNA. This is this thing called cytosine. There's adenine, which is the A, and the guanidine, which is often abbreviated to a G. In terms of DNA, these tended to contain this thing called thymine, which is a T, and in RNA molecules, right, you had this thing called uracine. So, this is the, this, so we had this structure, and we thought it, was, it was thought that it was important in terms of storing information and passing that information on. But how that occurred, nobody really knew. And actually, everybody's heard about this paper, published in 1953 by Watson and Crick. And actually, they worked out the structure of these nucleotides, and in particular, worked out the structure of DNA. And this is very important. So it turns out that the DNA forms this double helix structure. So you have this backbone, which is of sugar phosphate groups, just here. And then you have these bridging nucleotides across this double helix. And the very important factor about this is that actually you only get certain pairings of these nucleotides. You either get an A to a T pairing or a G to a C pairing of these nucleotides. So it means when these two replicate, you get an exact copy of the original piece of DNA, which means you can pass on information uh, very accurately. So we had this situation, we now knew that DNA, we knew the structure of the DNA, we knew that actually the information was being passed through the, through the copying of these nucleotides. But still the next big question was, how is actually DNA turned in to proteins, was the next, obviously the next big question. And really there was an enormous effort over the next 10 to 15 years to work out this process, and I'm just basically going to uh, summarise it now. So it turns out that what happens is that you have this DNA molecule, this double, this, this double helix, and it is transcribed into an exact copy of RNA, which is called the messenger RNA. And this, say, this occurs through a process of transcription. Then what happens is that this messenger RNA is translated into the protein. And this, this is mediated by this thing called a tra another type of RNA called a transfer RNA. And basically, the, the, the transfer RNA recognizes the sequence here and adds the right amino acids in the right order to produce the final protein, which you have just here. So I just want to show you a bit of video just to, just to sort of emphasize this, just to cover this in a bit more detail. Hope this will work. And this is the wonders of YouTube. 
So we're going to go through the process here with transcription and translation. The cells in our bone marrow 
churn out a hundred trillion molecules of it per second. Okay. okay, so so basically just to recap, um, so by the, the early 70s what we had is we discovered the structure of DNA and, so, and Bart has actually shown that DNA is converted into proteins by the process of transcription and translation. Then the next big question becomes, we, we know what the process is, but what is actually the sequence of the, of the human DNA? And often we call the whole sequence of the human DNA, the human genome. And really, the big problem we had at the time is we didn't have the technology to go about doing that sequencing. That was the, the big problem we had. And really that changed by a paper that was published in 1977 by a chap called Frederick Sanger, who was based in Cambridge. And he published a technique for quite rapidly sequencing DNA. And the first thing that he sequenced, the first organism to be sequenced, was this M2 bacteriophage. It's basically a, like a virus that infects a bacteria. Now, this bacteria is actually quite small in relative terms. It's only 500, it's only just slight like 5,500 nucleotides, and it only contains 11 genes. If you compare that to the human genome, which actually contains over 3 billion nucleotides, it's obviously a big step from here up to, up to the human genome. This was such an important paper that actually even within three years, Frederick Sanger re received the Nobel Prize for discovery, uh, for discovering this technique. And actually Frederick Sanger had already received the Nobel Prize uh, back in 1958 for being involved in sequencing, for actually in this case, working out the structure of insulin. So he's one of the very few people who've actually received the Nobel Prize twice uh, in his lifetime. And actually, he, so on retirement, I, I was reading about him actually, on retirement, he, he just retired and he's now into gardening. And apparently they've just, they've set up, a, they wanted to set up a big institute in Cambridge, uh, which is now called the Sanger Institute, and they obviously wanted to use his name to sort of name this institute. And he was very, he wasn't very keen to have his name attached to this institute, and eventually he did agree, and he said to the, the chapter, make sure it's a good institute, was his, was sort of his last words. So he's a, he's a, a, a big chap in terms of, of this area. So, 1977, uh, so Frederick Sanger produced his paper, and then things started to move very, very, very rapidly. In 1984, we had the first sequence of a virus, this Epstein virus. In this case, you see a big leap forward here. We have 170,000 nucleotides in length of this virus. In 1987, this company called Applied Biosystems actually produced the first automated DNA sequencing machine. And within a year of that, the, 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 the launch of really the sequence of the human genome was officially launched uh, within a year. And basically what happened over the next 12 years is the human genome was sequenced. It turns out to say that this is over 300 billion bases long. It came in at a cost of $3 billion. Uh, uh, $3 billion. And as I say, the first draft was released uh, in the year 2000. So when the first draft was released, there was a number of really unexpected outcomes. And I think this is really where the tipping point between sort of the rise of the gene and actually the, the fall of the gene occurred. So one of the biggest surprises was that actually because of the complexity of, human organ, complexity of the human, they were expecting around 60 to 100,000 protein-coding genes or messenger RNAs in humans. As it turned out, there was only 23,000. So it was much less than they expected <coughs> to see. If you actually look at how much of the DNA codes for those protein-coding genes, it turns out there's only 2% of the whole human genome. So that will suggest that the other 98% of the DNA in your cell is actually junk DNA. It's actually doing nothing uh, whatsoever. 
Another big shock is that actually only 7% of your genes are actually unique to humans. The rest of them can be found in other organisms. So that was another big shock. And finally, one of the, and, and we, this is now quite clear, is actually there's no relationship between the complexity or the size of an organism and the number of genes that you actually see in that organism. So just to give you an example here, so this is good old human beings, which are called Homo sapiens. We have hundreds of different cell types. In fact, we have between 50 and 100 trillion cells in every single human being. Yet, as I said, we only have 23,000 genes. If you look at this really simple worm here, which is called the C. elegans worm, and we'll come back to it in a little while, this worm only has 1,000 cells, but it still has 20,000 genes. And even more worrying is you have the grapes here actually have more genes than we do. They have 30,000 genes. So it didn't seem to make any sense that genes um, were important in terms of determining the complexity of an organism. So this really argued that the importance of the gene as a primary determinant of explaining differences between organisms probably wasn't true. So we need to explain why this is the case, how this is the case. And so I just want to talk about, in the second part of the talk, about, about this. I want to talk about what regulates the difference between organisms. And I want to argue that actually it's not based on the number of genes that you have in your biological system, but on the interactions of uh, the various different components of, of, of biological systems. And I think to understand this, you have to really change your philosophical approach to understanding biology. And I'll come back to this uh, in, in the last couple of slides of, of the presentation. So just to, just to sort of give you a sort of a... a an overview of, of, of interactions. I just want to talk about some of the work that we've been doing, and, and many of the people here have been doing it with me, is looking at the role of this 90 80% of so-called junk DNA. Does it have a job uh, in human cells? So as I said, we have the DNA sequence here. We know that, um, that, that there's the proteins here, about 23,000 of them, transcription and translation. Uh, we know about 2% of this actually is transcribed and then translated to produce these proteins through these messenger RNAs, and this 2% is called coding RNA because it actually codes for proteins. What we also know is a lot, much of the rest of the DNA is also transcribed, but it is not converted into proteins. And this is called non-coding RNA. So basically, I just want to talk about the work we've been doing, looking at the role of this non-coding RNA, what role does it have? In terms of non-coding RNA, we tend to define non-coding RNAs as either short or long. It's a completely arbitrary definition. It's because the way that we isolate RNA is that the short RNA drops off the bottom of columns and the longer stuff stays on the top of columns. So the short RNA, non-coding RNA, is, is under 200 nucleotides, and the long non-coding RNA is over 200 nucleotides. So I just want to start off with talking about this short non-coding RNA. So the first sort of inkling that actually this non-coding RNA might have a role, it may not just be junk, was a paper that was published in 1998 by these two chaps, uh, Andrew Fire and Craig Mello. It's a bit of an interesting title here. It's called The Potent Specific Genetic Interference of Double-Stranded RNA in C. elegans. And we, uh, we've already looked at C. elegans. This is a worm. It only contains 1,000 cells. But they did this study where they took a section of a messenger RNA and they made... Uh, a double, made it into a double strand, so they made a, a sort of a complementary double-stranded section of a piece of messenger RNA. This is quite a long piece of messenger RNA. And what they found is if you injected it into these worms, it actually led, it blocked the translation of the messenger RNA into a protein. And they called this pathway the RNA interference pathway. And so this was discovered uh, in about, in, in, this reported in 1998. About the same time, some people in Cambridge also showed that you get this type of RNA interference in plants. But when they tried to do it in humans, in mammalian cells, 
they couldn't get it to work. It, you didn't see this iron interference pathway. And so there wasn't an awful lot of interest in this pathway. They just thought it was just something that was specific for plants or for these small worms. And so the paper was published again in Nature in 2001. And basically the problem was is that people were injecting, the, the length of RNA they were injected into human cells was too long. You do see this pathway if the, if the RNA sequences are much shorter. And in this case, you have to, they have to be 21 nucleotides long. Once this had been identified, it turns out that RNA interference, this pathway is actually present in virtually all different cell types in all different, in all different species. And really, this has revolutionized the way that we go about looking at the function of genes and actually revolutionized the pharmaceutical industry. So nowadays, what we can do is we can take a, a gene of interest or a messenger RNA and we can design these short interference RNAs to target this messenger RNA, block its translation and therefore knock out the protein. And this way we can look at what that protein does. We can see if it's potentially going to be a good drug target. And it really has revolutionized the way that we do biology in the last, 20, in the last 10 years. If you were a biologist before 1991, it was a nightmare to knock out genes, and now it's much, much easier to do that. And that was really recognized in 2006, when uh, Andrew Farr and Craig Mello were, given the Nobel, were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology for their discovery of iron interference, even though it was in worms, it actually turned out to be very useful in humans and in mammals. <coughs> the other interesting fact is, about a few years later, is that is some people showed that actually that some of the junk DNA is actually converted into these things called microRNAs, and microRNAs use exactly the same pathway to regulate uh, gene expression in, in cells. So basically what you have here is you have one of these long-coded long RNAs, and basically it's chopped up by these various different proteins to produce these things called microRNAs. And these microRNAs are 21 nucleotides long. They're exactly the same length as the short interference RNAs. And what they do through this protein called Argo2 is they are interference, they actually can, they can regulate uh, the translational process and therefore uh, block proteins. And it turns out there's actually about two, slightly over 2,000 of these uh, microRNA genes are produced uh, in human cells. Another interesting fact is that each of these microRNAs, it turns out, can actually not just control one protein, but often they can control tens to hundreds of proteins, which makes them uh, quite important. And so after this observation, we decided uh, to look at the role of microRNAs in the respiratory system and whether they also had a role uh, in inflammation. So one of the first experiments we did, and, and Andy, who was responsible for this study, is sitting in the audience. What we did is we showed that microRNA expression is profoundly changed uh, during lung development. And this basically this data is shown just here. So what we did is we took lungs from neonates, uh, from babies, and, and compared it with the, with the, the expression in adult lungs. And we looked at the expression of individual microRNAs. So each of these lines is an individual microRNA, and each of these columns an individual sample. So if the expression of the microRNA is downregulated during development, it's shown in red. If it's upregulated, it's shown in green. And what Andy showed is that all of the microRNAs that were downregulated were part of the same family of microRNAs called 154, and they all happened to be on the same place on the human genome. And it was quite a, an interesting discovery. Of the microRNAs that were upregulated, which are listed here, so microRNAs are basically named as they're discovered, so the, the smaller the number, the earlier they were discovered. So we found that microRNA 29 and 26 were upregulated, and it simply turns out these are actually very important in regulating lung fibrosis and lung cancer. He also identified two of the microRNAs, 142 and 223, which turned out to be also important in regulating inflammation in the lung. Next thing we did was look at the role of microRNAs 
in inflammation, and this work was done by Mark, who's also sitting in this audience. So what we did in these studies, we took human lung epithelial cells, and we activated them with this thing called interleukin-1-beta, which, which is basically an inflammatory mediator. It stimulates inflammation. And we looked at inflammation over 24 hours. And again, the first thing we did was we looked at the expression of these individual microRNAs. So each of these lines is an individual microRNA, and each of the columns is an individual sample. So these are the cells that haven't been stimulated, and these are the ones that have been activated or stimulated. If the expression's down, it's shown in green. If the expression's up, it's shown in red. And amazing what we saw is there was just one microRNA that was upregulated, and this microRNA is microRNA146A. Mark then went on to show, we looked at whether this microRNA was actually activated in, in, in other cell types, and we, what we found is that whenever you activated the, any cell type in the lung, you, you saw upregulation of this particular microRNA. So this is basically shown in this slide just here. So, we could, so just 146A expression here. So you can see this is in primary human airway smooth muscle cells that have been activated with I1-beta. This is um, human lung macrophages again. In this case, stimulate with this LPS, which is a bacterial component, which I'll come on to in a, in a moment. Uh, bronchial epithelial cells, again, stimulated more epithelial cells and also the alveolar epithelial cells. But the take-home message here is that whenever we activated cells, we saw upregulation of this particular microRNA uh, in all circumstances. So we then went on to sort of what does this microRNA do? And it turns out that this microRNA negatively regulates the inflammatory response. And I'll just try and explain what I mean by this. So if you activate, this is the lung epithelial cell, but you activate any cells, in, the, in this case we've done it with interleukin-1-beta, what you get, as we've already shown, you get upregulation of 146A, and you get the induction of the inflammatory response. But what happens is, is the 146A actually switches off the inflammatory response. So it's always to switch off inflammation uh, once it's got started. I say we've shown that this microRNA had a role in terms of regulating inflammation, but the next question we ask is, does it have a role in disease? Um, in this case, this is the paper that we published earlier on this year. We basically looked at microRNA 146A expression in severe asthma, and it's basically just shown just here. So in this study, we taught people who didn't have asthma, people who had non-severe asthma, so they had sort of a mild type of asthma, and then people who had severe asthma. This is the number of patients in each group. This is the age of those patients, and the ratio of males to females. And this is the lung function. So normally, in most individuals, they expect who don't have a lung disease to have 100% lung function. So people who don't have asthma, around 100%. People who have mild asthma is around 80%. You can see that clearly the people that have severe asthma have a reduction in their lung function down to around 70%. And this is a methacholine challenge. Just, uh, so people who have asthma would respond to methacholine challenge. So the people who don't, this, in this group, they don't respond. In this group, they do respond. And we didn't actually check the severe asthmatics because you don't actually want to kill them by giving them, a, giving them an asthma attack. So what we, we did is we looked at these T cells that circulate uh, in, in the blood, and these are thought to regulate inflammation. And what we found is actually get down-regulation of this microRNA-146A. And what we believe is that down-regulation of 146A can actually lead then to an increase in inflammation because this, this microRNA is resolved in switching off the inflammatory response. So as it drops, as its, as its levels are reduced, you may expect inflammation to increase. So just to summarise uh, so far, we, we have 
sort of this, we have the normal protein uh, production pathway and we have this pathway producing non-coding RNAs. And hopefully what I've shown to you is actually we have these microRNAs that are very important in regulating translation are produced from this so-called junk uh, DNA. So we, I say, the work we did on microRNAs, we, we did, um, was probably about seven to, uh, seven, well, seven years ago, up to about two years ago. And about two years ago, we decided to look at the, the role of long non-coding RNAs, when they actually have a role as well. And really, this was made possible by the advent of very advanced sequencing machines. And I'm just going to show you a promo here for these new sequencing machines, uh, and then to talk about them uh, a little bit afterwards. flexibility, accuracy, and ease of use is Illumina's sequencing technology. Let's look at the chemistry for the three steps in the genome analyzer workflow. Library preparation, cluster generation, and sequencing. Library preparation. The genome analyzer performs massively parallel sequencing of hundreds of millions of fragments of DNA. First, the DNA is fragmented, sheared ends are repaired and adenylated. Adapter oligos are ligated to both ends of the fragments. These fragments are then size-selected and purified. Cluster generation. On the CBOT cluster system, single molecules are isothermally amplified in a flow cell to prepare them for high-throughput sequencing. The 8-channel genome analyzer flow cell has a dense lawn of oligos grafted to its surface. These oligos bind to the adapters ligated to the library fragments. Single DNA molecules hybridize to the lawn of oligos. Bound fragments are extended to create copies. These copies are covalently bound to the flow cell surface. Each library fragment is clonally amplified through a series of extensions and isothermal bridge amplifications resulting in hundreds of millions of unique clusters. The reverse trends are cleaved and washed away. Ends are blocked and the sequencing primer is hybridized to the DNA templates. After cluster generation, the libraries are ready for sequencing. Sequencing. On the genome analyzer, Hundreds of millions of clusters are sequenced simultaneously. The DNA templates are sequenced base by base, in parallel, using four fluorescently labeled, reversibly terminated nucleotides. All four bases compete with each other to bind to the template. This natural competition ensures the highest accuracy. After each round of synthesis, the clusters are excited by a laser emitting a color that identifies the newly added base. The fluorescent label and blocking group are then removed, allowing for the addition of the next base. This proprietary chemistry reads a single base in each cycle, enabling accurate sequencing through difficult regions such as homopolymers and repetitive sequences.
Well, so I hope you listen to that because I'm going to ask questions at the end. No, so, so the point I'm trying to make really is that I just want to show you what these machines do and how they work because I mean really they have revolu- they are revolutionising revolutionising biology. So this is not even the latest machine. This is the one that most people use nowadays. It's called the HiSec 2000. And this machine, we know that the original publication by Sanger, where you could sequence one sequence at a time, this machine will sequence eight, six billion sequences simultaneously. So a massive step up of 100 base pairs long. It means that in a single run, which takes 11 days, this machine can sequence 600 billion uh, nucleotides. So if you think the human genome was 300, 3 billion nucleotides, this machine can sequence 200 times the human genome in 11 days which originally took 12 days to do, so, so 12 years to do. So you can see the massive step forward in terms of technology that, that has taken place in the last couple of years. And it's just opened up a whole new area in terms of sequencing human genomes and be able to look at these non-coding RNAs. What's the next, I mean, I'll come back to talk about it, but what's the next, next step forward in terms of sequences? So there's actually a company in, in Oxford called Oxford Nanopore which is actually trying to make a disposable human genome sequencer. So what you do is you plug this into your computer and you add your sample, and it sequences your whole genome, and then you throw it away. And this is the sort of technology that's been developed at the moment. It's probably about five to ten years away. But actually, you know, considering how far we've come just in the last three or four years, it's probably true that this is going to be available within five to ten years from now. So because of this sequencing technology, we're now actually be able to look at these other non-coding RNAs, these long non-coding RNAs. And just before I talk about long non-coding RNAs, I just need to explain what they are and, and how we name them. So basically, there's four groups of long non-coding RNAs, and we name them by their relative position to protein coding genes, which is these messenger RNAs. So what I haven't said so far is actually messenger RNAs are actually made up of, uh, of different blocks called exons, which are then spliced together to make the final messenger RNA. So these exons get spliced together to make messenger RNAs. So we have four different groups of long non-coding RNAs. We have this group called the natural antisense long non-coding RNAs, and basically they are sequences that run in the opposite direction along the exon, and that's why they're called antisense. The other group is the so-called pseudogene, so often uh, messenger RNAs will reinsert themselves back into the DNA, and actually though they're not converted into proteins, they're called uh, pseudogenes. The other two groups are these things called intronic long non-coding RNAs, and they're in these so-called introns between the exons of messenger RNAs, and the final group is this thing called an intergenic uh, long non-coding RNA, and these are between protein-coding genes. And really, for the last two year or so, we've been looking at the role of these intergenic uh, non- long non-coding RNAs. And I'm just going to show you a couple of slides on the work that we've been doing. So again, the sort of question we asked about 18 months ago, two years ago, is about do these long intergenic long, co- long non-coding RNAs, like microRNAs, do they have a role uh, in the inflammatory response? And so to answer this question, what we've, we've done is we've done work on these things called human monocytes and human macrophages. So basically, human monocytes float around in your blood all the time. And if there's some sort of infection in the tissue, these monocytes will migrate into the tissue where the infection is, and they turn themselves into macrophages, these huge cells called macrophages. And it's macrophages that go around gobbling up infections, bacteria, and uh, fungi, and things like that. So what we've done here is we've taken human monocytes, we've taken human macrophages, and we've activated them with this thing called LPS. So LPS is actually derived from bacterial cell walls. So these cells think there's some sort of bacteria around, and it activates them to give an inflammatory response. And this is what we've looked at again uh, over 24 hours. 
using this next generation sequencing technology, we've identified a whole range of this, don't, not important details here, we've, we've identified a whole number of these long intergenic non-coding RNAs that are either switched on, which are the top ones, the top four, or switched off uh, following activation of monocytes and macrophages. And just to give you a feel for what this sort of data looks like, this is um, a sequencing run. What we have here is we have four patients that either uh, not, not at the, we have this, this sort of macrophage, some monocytes from four patients that have either not been activated or been activated with LPS. And what we're doing here, so we've got four different patients here. And what we're doing here is we're looking at a section of the human DNA. And this profile here is basically the sequence, uh, exp- it's the expression of that DNA that we can derive from sequencing data. And so what you can clearly see here is in the four patients that have been activated, you can see this uh, increase in the expression of the DNA uh, in these patients, and we know that actually this is a long intergenic non-coding RNA. So what do these long intergenic non-coding RNAs do? Well, actually, the work we've done so far uh, with only one of them suggests that actually, rather than being a negative regulator of the inflammatory response, they're actually required for the inflammatory response. So again, if you activate a cell here, in this case the LPS, you switch on the expression of these intergenic non-coding RNAs, and they're required for the inflammatory response. So if you actually knock these things out, you actually would knock out the inflammatory response. They look like potentially being quite good targets for drugs in terms of fighting inflammation. So uh, this is basically to summarise uh, the talk so far. And just the last couple of slides, uh, I just want to sort of summarise where you finish off. So basically what we have is we have the, the, the transcription and translation that produces the protein coding genes we have the transcription of these non-coding RNAs, and they turn out to be very important in regulating the expression of protein-coding genes. So in this case, we have microRNAs that appear to regulate the process of translation. And actually, we now know there's at least another seven families of these small non-coding RNAs that have been investigated. And then also we have these long non-coding RNAs, which appear, or I'm not sure the data, but they appear to regulate the transcription of protein-coding genes. So what you can clearly see here is that non-coding RNAs are regulating expression of the coding RNAs. So it's, there's, a very, there's a lot of interactions going on uh, in this process. And we're a long way from discovering all of them. So we really want to go back to the question, which is the rise and fall of the gene. Um, and the, the, sort of the, the question that I really posed was, was it, it, if you look at the complexity of organisms, you, there doesn't seem to be any sort of relationship between the number of genes and the complexity of the organism. So, I mean, how can we explain this? And I'd like to argue it needs to explain this. You need a change in sort of the philosophical approach to, to the way that we do and think about biological uh, problems. So traditionally, as biologists, the way that we look at a problem is that we, we sort of do it in a reductionist way. And we sort of assume that you understand by biology by looking at the molecular interactions at right at the, at the base level, um, and particularly that between proteins, which obviously derive from genes. And the way to think about it is, is basically that the, the human body is basically the sum of all the proteins and the interactions and the, the, the number of proteins uh, that are there. And really to sort of, as an analogy to this, so that the way it would be is if, if you had an aeroplane, if you could understand all the different components of an aeroplane and how they slot together, then obviously you'd be able to understand how an aeroplane works. It's the sort of basis of the sort of reductionist approach. The only problem with that is that as the complexity of an organism increases, you need to increase the number of genes to explain that. And that doesn't appear to be the case. We seem to have the same number of genes, whatever the, the complexity of the organism. What I'd like to argue is what we need to have is a, is a different philosophical approach to this problem. 
And, and one of the arguments I'm going to make is, is this thing called dialectics. So dialectics is a, is a common theory, a common philosophical approach used in other subjects such as economics and politics. And actually it was very widely used in the early part of the 20th century in biology. A lot of physiologists took a dialectic approach to looking at problems in physiology. But it sort of died out as sort of gene rose up, this type of approach sort of died down because reductionism seemed to work so effectively. So basically what dialectics say is that interactions, it's the interactions that are important. So that as the interactions increase, it creates new levels and it creates new properties that are actually very difficult to predict. These interactions, you can't predict what, what new properties are going to come from that. And just to give you an idea of that, so we have proteins here. We know that proteins interact together. In this case, it's called the ribosome, which actually is involved in the translation process. But it is virtually impossible to predict, if you put a series of proteins together, what they will behave like once you get them into a big complex. When you take lots of proteins, you put them into organelles. Again, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen. New properties come out of that interaction. And again, organelles organise together to produce cells. <coughs> cells interact together and then to produce uh, organs. And obviously, organs interact to produce the full uh, human uh, organism. So the thing about this approach is that it's not genes that are important, it's the amount of interactions that are going on between the various different, different components of the biological system that creates new properties and that creates complexity. So you don't need to have more genes, you just need to have more complex systems with more interactions going on. And it is the case that if you look at organisms, human beings have very large amounts of non-coding RNA, whereas lower organisms don't. And that non-coding RNA could explain those increased interactions and increased in complexity. The other thing about dialectics is it absolutely requires that you take into account time when you look at your biological responses. And that's very important in biology, and we tend to ignore it, but the fact is that ageing is very important in biology. And we don't tend to do the experiments, ageing experiments, because they're very expensive to do. It's very expensive to run an experiment for a long period of time, particularly annual experiments. But it is a well-known fact that the, you know, the biggest risk factor for any disease is actually age. The older you get, the more chance you are of getting a disease. And so it's a very important factor that we often don't take into account in biology, but which you must take into account in this time of approach. And the other thing is the environment. I mean, we do, to a certain extent, take, take into account the environment, but we don't take into account the environment's always changing. So the house that you lived in 20 years ago is 20 different from the house you live in now. The food that you eat is different. The drugs that you take are different. So the environment is constantly changing as well, and that's going to impact upon biological systems. So is there a good analogy for this uh, in another system? Oh, and I just want to argue, actually, it doesn't mean the reductionism work. It just means that you only use reductionist approach when you look at a certain level. You need to ask the right question at the right level. You can't go from proteins all the way up to human beings. You have to ask the question within a certain level for reductionism to work as a, as a sort of philosophical approach. So is there an example of where this works? And I would argue, actually, in physical sciences, this is exactly what they do in the physical sciences. So we know that everything is made up of atoms. But having said that, you know, if you want to understand the way that atoms interact in things like lasers and microchips, you use quantum mechanics. You use the theories of quantum mechanics to explain that. However, if you wanted to make a new drug, synthesize a new drug, it's, it's impossible to use those theories of quantum mechanics and those laws to, to predict what will happen when you synthesize a new drug. In this case, you need a new set of laws and rules, which is the laws of chemistry. And again, if you're going to build a bridge, you wouldn't use the laws of, of quantum mechanics or chemistry. You actually have your, another set of rules that you use, in this case, Newtonian physics and the, the laws of physics and engineering. So I think this is a good analogy in terms of, in biology, we tend to you know, look from, from right from the bottom right to the top, whereas in physical sciences, they have different laws at different levels that they use to explain different phenomena. 
And so my argument would be that actually, by looking at the sequence of DNA, you cannot predict what's going to happen uh, in, a, in a full organism. So just, just to thank all the people that are actually here and have helped me do this work over the last couple of years. I managed to pull all these photographs off the internet. I'm really sorry if you don't like the photograph that I pulled of you. Um, Maria, just here. Um, Ian, unfortunately, couldn't make it because his daughter's um, a ball girl at Wimbledon this week, apparently, so she couldn't make it. And, then, and I'd like to thank particularly Peter Barnes, who has um, actually resigned twice from Peter Barnes, and he's given me a job back, so uh, he can't get rid of me. Um, uh, Louise, uh, Fan Chung, and Mark, who first gave me a job when I moved to London. Um, and Duncan and Patty, but I couldn't get pictures of you two, so unfortunately you're not there. And then all the people that have actually done the work um, over the years, and I've already mentioned uh, Mark, who did the work on microRNAs and inflammation, and he did a lot of the work on the aging lung and um, lung development, and, and asthma. And other people that are not here, um, these are the people at Imperial College where I worked for a number of years. Manchester I worked for a couple of years, and we still have all these people here that are working on various different projects, and I finally just moved to the University of Bath, and we have James, who's doing a sterling job at the moment looking at the long, intergenic, non-coding RNAs. And so thank you for listening. Um, Thank you.